This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Had they taken that obvious reporting bias into account? Nope, they hadn't. They didn't think it mattered. My exasperation level with these guys was rising fast. Then they said something that completely changed my perspective on the problem. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Suppose she dies. That's the question NASA's medical researchers asked themselves when they learned that the powers that be had assigned a woman, me, to do a spacewalk. They got the word around October 1983. Why would they think I might die? Here's the story. Let me give you a bit of context first. You know that flying in space is a rare experience. Just over 600 people have ever done it. Well, spacewalking is rarer still. Maybe one-third of space flyers get to do that. And spacewalks are definitely risky things. You're putting a frail human being into a body-shaped spaceship, that's what a spacesuit really is, and sending them out into the vacuum of space. NASA's view of spacewalks back in 1983, with just a half-dozen shuttle flights under its belt, was that they should be done only when absolutely necessary like when the mission was at stake. We astronauts knew this would have to change. The shuttle had been advertised as a versatile vehicle whose crews could retrieve, repair, and refuel satellites in orbit. If we were going to deliver on that promise, spacewalks would have to become a much more routine mode of working in orbit. We were under the gun to prove we were up to this challenge. We had only taken the first baby step in that direction when I was told of my assignment that October with the very first shuttle spacewalk back in April. That was basically a shakedown run on the brand new shuttle-era spacesuit. We were also still in the early days of women flying in space. Just three women had ever flown at that point, Valentina Tereshkova, Svetlana Svitskaya, and Sally Ride, and none had ventured outside the spacecraft in a suit. I would be the first American woman to do that. Some folks thought I'd be the absolute first, but I knew that wouldn't happen. The Soviets were sure to have Svetlana Savitskaya do one before me. They really did love to grab all the big space first back then. My first hint that I had a battle ahead of me came from my boss, George Abbey. 
At the very same time he told me I had the job, he said, the medics think there's a problem with this. You better go talk to them. I decided to gather some intel before seeing them. So I went to visit fellow astronaut Joe Kerwin, a medical doctor himself, who was then leading the Life Sciences Division at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Joe gave me the names of the key people George was thinking of and a summary of their fears. They were a group of biomedical researchers who had done some studies that suggested women were more likely to get serious cases of the bends when exposed to low pressures, like in an altitude chamber or a spacesuit. As a scuba diver, that sounded crazy to me. I'd never seen any information that showed women got bent more than men. It was time to meet these guys. They were all men, of course. And take a look at their data. They were a pleasant enough bunch, but quite convinced that women doing spacewalks was a big problem. They based this on some altitude chamber tests done at their Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine in San Antonio. You see, everyone in a flying job in the Air Force had to take an annual altitude chamber test to maintain their flying status, just like we astronauts had to do. That means pilots and co-pilots, flight surgeons, and flight nurses. So here's what happens in an altitude chamber test. The test subjects go inside a strong metal chamber wearing their flight gear. Technicians on the outside seal the chamber and pump air out until the pressure inside is equivalent to flying at jet altitudes. This shows the subjects what it's like to breathe when their mask is pushing the strong flow of oxygen into their mouth. For another part of the test, they pair up and the techs tell one of the pair to take off their oxygen mask. There's so little air in the chamber that the maskless person goes totally loopy in about 10 seconds, unable to add two plus two or hold a pencil, much less put their mask back on. The idea here is to clue them in to the symptoms they'll feel if something goes wrong with the cabin pressure or the oxygen system in their plane. By the way, the 10 seconds till your loopy part, that's why airlines tell you to put on your own mask before trying to help someone else. When all's done, the techs would bring the chamber down to normal pressure and have each test subject report any pains they experienced during the test. Most of the subject in their study had no bend symptoms, but those that did were predominantly female, and a few of those cases were severe. This was the basis of their concern. I pointed out to them that the pilots knew they'd be grounded if they said they had the bends. They'd limp out with tears streaming down their cheeks rather than say a word. Nurses, on the other hand, they were trained to scrupulously observe and report a patient's every symptom. Had they taken that obvious reporting bias into account? Nope, they hadn't. They didn't think it mattered. My exasperation level with these guys was rising fast. Then they said something that completely changed my perspective on the problem. They weren't trying to revoke my assignment or argue that women flat out could not do spacewalks. Instead, they wanted the shuttle's operating rules to require that female spacewalkers follow a longer and more cautious pre-breathe protocol before suiting up. A pre-breathe is just what it says, breathing pure oxygen for a period of time before you suit up to wash the nitrogen out of your body so there's less of it to form bubbles in your bloodstream when you switch to the lower pressure they calculated that the medical safety margin would be about the same for both men and women if the women did twice as long a pre-breathe. 
Now, you may think that sounds sensible, but I foresaw a big problem. Every mission had two trained spacewalkers aboard to fix emergency situations that could doom the shuttle and her crew. The most worried-about example of this was if the cargo doors that ran the whole length of the shuttle's spine would not close. If that happened, the mission's two spacewalkers would use a winch and clamps to pull the doors shut and lock them closed. But suppose one of the spacesuits wasn't working. Would NASA ignore the usually sacrosanct buddy rule and send someone out solo? You bet they would in such a dire situation. So now add on to that scenario the possibility that the situation is time critical. The cargo doors must be closed as soon as possible to get the shuttle back to Earth. This leads you to what I saw to be the big problem. If some of your astronauts, namely the women, need twice as long to get outside safely as others, and have much greater risk of getting the bends if they can't take that extra time, well, then you would never assign any of those astronauts to be a spacewalker. You wouldn't compromise a crew's ability to solve an emergency by adding the extra time and risk into the equation. In other words, I reckoned that if the medics won this fight and levied a different spacewalk rule on me, women could be ruled out as spacewalkers altogether. I wasn't about to let that happen. We would start developing the detailed operating rules for our specific mission in about six months. These guys had a peer-reviewed scientific publication to back up their argument for a female flight rule. What did I have? How could I prove they were wrong? That question turned on the light bulb in my head. I didn't have to prove they were wrong or even that women were not actually at higher risk. I just had to show that their data weren't adequate to justify a separate flight rule for female spacewalkers. I started analyzing their study more carefully. Turned out ignoring the pilot versus nurse reporting bias wasn't their only problem. They hadn't studied a whole lot of people, maybe 50 or 60 as I recall, and very few of those were flight nurses. You know, anyone who ever took Statistics 101, they'll tell you that you can't extrapolate such a small amount of data to a large population. But that's exactly what these guys had done. And they hadn't controlled or checked the data to account for any of the physical factors that are known to predispose people to the bends. Things like percentage of body fat, hydration state, or prior injuries, to name a few. Since most of the people who got bent were female, they simply concluded gender was the risk factor. We had more meetings and debates about this over the next months than I can remember, and a whole lot of them tested my patience to the limit. But I managed to keep my cool and not get drawn into feeling I was being accused personally of being unfit for spacewalking or that I was fighting a cosmic battle on behalf of all women. My position was simple. Our flight rules should be based on sound data, not leaps of judgment based on skimpy data and sloppy statistics. Happily, my commander, Bob Crippen, backed me, and we won the day. Dave Leisman and I floated out of Challenger's airlock on October 11, 1984, having both gone through the exact same pre-breeze protocol, and nobody got bent. When I left the astronaut corps 18 years later, the medical research crowd was still arguing for a more cautious protocol for spacewalks, but now they were pushing to apply it to everyone, male and female alike, 
and had the entire astronaut corps opposing them fiercely. So, what can you take from this story? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That was a common adage around the astronaut corps back then. The main thing here was not an attack on me or on all women. It was to keep a level footing for male and female spacewalkers and to insist on sound data to back up any flight rule. Figuring out what the main thing is amid a swirling cloud of detail and lots of loud voices can be really hard, but it's super important, especially for leaders. Peel away the layers. Think carefully about what's causing what. Try to get at the root of the issue. You'll often find a lot of the mess and noise falls away when you tackle the root problem. The key is to keep yourself and your team focused. Fight the right battle. Solve the root of the problem. Give it a try. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.